Good morning. So years ago, my wife and I were in the to have kids or not to have kids debate. We were on the fence about it until it hit us. We had this really great set of rules that we had come up with. She's a spreadsheet person, so you know it's all on spreadsheets and categories. So naturally we thought, hey, let's have kids, and then they can keep all of our rules. (laughs) So now we've got three kids, two of them are in middle school, they've got a ton of energy, and it pleases us so much in that moment where we pull out the rule book And we cite rule number 257, which is there's no synchronized jumping on the couches as if they were trampolines, and we squash any fun and joy that they could possibly be having. Just just kidding. (laughs) We, uh, We did have the to have kids or not to have kids debate, but it wasn't about the rules. In fact, that wasn't even in my brain. We did not have kids so there would be someone to keep the rules, but I think often we approach God like that, as if he made us just so we could be the, he could be the ultimate like rule enforcer and just have his thumb on us. So we slouch and we have no fun and we're just, ah. Oh. But I mean, the reality is in our family, we do have rules. We actually have a lot of them. We've got a ton of rules in my family. And it's not because we want to squash the fun or squash the joy. It's because we actually want increased joy and we want our kids to thrive. We want them to have the most fun but not die in the process and maybe reduce the amount of trips we you know, go to the ER. We've been there once. Those CAT scans for head you know, concussions are actually pretty expensive, we found out. So sometimes you have rules, and they're, they're rules that if you enforce them, like put your helmet on before you get on your bicycle, then when you fall, you might not end up having to stay overnight in the hospital. And it might seem sometimes for us, when you read the Bible, that Christianity is all about following rules. And I think, honestly, that's probably what most non-Christians think we're all about when we come and we gather here on Sunday mornings. Our society, in some ways, I I don't blame them because I think it does tend to be a lot of what we focus on when we talk to them. Because we're over here, like, you know, dishing out the Ten Commandments. Hey, sinner, here's a checklist for you, for your unregenerate heart. Do a good job or brace yourself for eternal consequences. Go. The Ten Commandments are great. There are a lot of really great rules in this book here. But if you just focus on those, and that's the only thing you know about Christianity, you're missing the center of the plot line. Which isn't about following rules at all. It's about a relationship with a person, and that's Jesus Christ. Through Jesus the one who didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, we have freedom. He's the liberator. For freedom, Christ has set you free, it says in the book of Galatians, in the Bible. That's the gospel. 
that you can be made right with God, justified is the spiritual word for that. You can have access to God without having kept all the rules. In fact, no amount of rule keeping can make you acceptable before God. So Christ had to come in person and live a life that perfectly kept all of those rules. And he did that. And his perfect record, the gospel says, can become your perfect record of rule keeping. And the wrath of God for sin can be taken off your shoulders because it was put on the shoulders of Jesus Christ when he was put on the cross and killed. But it's not that we ignore the rules. The law, as we found out as we taught through the book, books of the Bible that you know, have the law, we found out last year the law is really good. God gave it to Moses for a reason. And the thing is, the law, it's right. When you look at the Ten Commandments and you say, love God, love your neighbor, don't lie, don't cheat, don't covet, don't steal. These are really, really good things, but following them can't save you. The law, is it, all it really is is a diagnostic tool. It's like when you go to the doctor they give you the diagnosis. That's not going to save you. The diagnosis, oh, I've got cancer. Great. Cool. I'm saved now. That's really what the law does for us. It gives us this diagnosis that internally you're sick. You have this terminal condition. It's called sin. But the law isn't the treatment for healing. It's not the cure. It's not the path to life for you. All it is is exposing what's lurking inside you, and that is a depraved nature prone to sin, rebellious against God, that deserves death that's terminal, it diagnoses your rebellion against God. And so if you're a Christian and you're here and maybe life is not peaceful, like Zeke was referring to this morning, maybe life is anxious and it's not full of joy, maybe you're not thriving, it could be because you're running back continually to the diagnostic of the law and looking to it for your healing. And all you're doing is feeling more and more broken. You have to run to the cross. You have to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ so God sees you as perfect, as blameless, as spotless, with no condemnation. And so I wonder, as we Christians hand the world our belief system, if most of the time we end up handing them the diagnostic of the rules, the laws, and telling them to get right with God that way, at least that's what they're understanding. And guess what? No freedom for them. No joy for them. And why would you come to church if you're only going to just feel worse about your condition? That's where we're going to go today as we study Galatians chapter 2. Let me pray and then we'll open our Bibles and we'll just go through verse by verse and talk about this. God, I am just increasingly, as my life goes on, more and more grateful for the gospel. Thank you for forgiving me. But even more than that, that's a great status change, but thank you that that forgiveness has now granted me access to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the blessed Trinity that we were just singing about. Holy and set apart, 
unable to be in the presence of any evil, any sin, even the hint of sin, would get destroyed in your presence. But God, I can stand there confidently because of what Jesus did, and I'm so grateful for that today. Help us just to have that sink into our souls today. If there's anyone in this room, God, that doesn't believe that that could possibly be true, whatever hang-up they've got, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd be working on that today. Because we would love to see people go from a terminal condition to completely healed this morning. With ever-expanding joy for all eternity to come. I believe that that could be true. And so God, work on us. Let your word sink into us. And Holy Spirit, speak through me. And we pray that your church, we would be able to accurately share what you're all about to the world around us. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we'll be in Galatians 2 today. That's in page 572 of your house Bible. We did spend quite a bit of time in a series where we talked about the law, and we thought Galatians was a really good follow-up to that because, well, you notice there's a heart up here with stuff written on it, because Galatians really it refers to this moment where the law goes from written on stone tablets, delivered by you know, God to Moses, and then now written on our hearts, hearts of flesh, and there's life that comes out of that law, and we're going to talk about that this morning. So we're going to be in Galatians 2. We're going to start in verse 11. And if you are new here today, first of all, thank you for braving the ice. I had like two inches of ice on the windshield this morning. That was pretty crazy. How many of you destroyed your windshield wipers accidentally? We've got at least one, <laughs> two. <laughs> yeah. that, that's a problem. But you braved it. You're here. There's, there's a bunch of us here. If you're watching on the live stream because you didn't make it out, that's great too. We're with you in spirit. Um, okay, so we are uh, we're in Galatians. We're going to start in verse 11. So Paul says this. He says, but when Cephas, that's Cephas is Peter. Sometimes in the Bible, Peter is called Peter. Sometimes he's called Cephas. Some call, sometimes he's called Simon. Those are all referring to the same person. He is Peter, Simon Peter, Cephas. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him, I meaning Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So just real quick on Antioch, it's nice to get our bearings sometimes. So there's the Middle East. You see Turkey there. This is the modern Google map. That marker there is Antioch. So it's north of where Israel would be at. It's a a pretty wealthy city. At one point, it became sort of number three in terms of size and power and resources and diversity and everything else that was the Roman Empire, I think behind Rome and and Alexandria. Um, Really, really prosperous, really, really diverse. And there's a church there, and it's actually in Acts chapter 11 says that in Antioch is the first time that the word Christian was associated with the followers of Christ. And so they were having an influence on the people around them. There was a large Jewish population there. And it's thought that probably around the time that this is written, when Cephas, Peter, comes to Antioch, and Paul is there, and these disciples are there, and there's a church there, the church was probably about split about 50-50 Jews and Gentiles. And so that introduces a tension 
So Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, so we have to stop and we have to think about what was up with Jewish culture at the time. What's with circumcision, the circumcision party, eating with people, um, like we're not allowed at the table if you're a Gentile versus a Jew? Like, is this like that scene in Mean Girls where, what's her name, Lindsay Lohan's character, has to wear pink on Wednesdays, otherwise she can't sit at the table? Is that, I, I don't know, I don't think it's like that. It's like the table in this culture, it had immense significance for people. It was a place, not like today where you drive up to the drive-thru and you get your burrito for $2 and it's as fast as possibly can be and it's so informal. It's like this main event of your life, of your day, and it's where people come together and it's where you, you have communion and fellowship with people who are like you and have your, your, your family's best interests in mind and so on and so forth. And it meant a lot um, the Jews at the time, they had worked hard for centuries to follow the ceremonial laws that are found in the books that Moses wrote. And there's strict rules on what to eat, what you can't eat, what you can and can't touch. Like you can't touch unclean things like dead bodies or, or fungus, mold, things like that. Like God had some things in mind for that. They were unclean. Those things were unclean. Um, you had to maintain your cleanliness in order to actually worship. And so you had to go through all this ceremony and all this effort. And so the Gentiles who were around them, they would eat the wrong things and they would touch the wrong things and they'd come to the table unwashed. The Jews actually had, I just wonder if some of them just ended up with like OCD because they were so busy washing all the time. And can you imagine if you've been born into that culture and that's like multiple times a day, you're going through this cleansing and you're paying really close attention to what you can and can't touch. And suddenly you sit down with someone who that day was touching fungus and maybe butchered an animal and has gunk all over them and is sitting down with you and they're just going to eat. And at that, you know, you didn't, you had to share like you're breaking bread together. So they just touched it. And, and, and then you have the spiritual like overtones in that where this is like, you're spiritually unclean. You can't go into worship. And if they touch that bread and then you touch that bread, then you can't go into worship. And that's just like embedded in your psyche as a Jew. It's, 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 sometimes I think maybe it's even hard for us to comprehend the magnitude of what someone like Peter would be going through in his head to sit at a table with this non-kosher, pagan-ish person, you know, so on and so forth. It's so, so crazy. So that's like the cleanliness aspect of the law. There was another aspect of the law and sacrifices that animal blood had to be spilled in order to atone for your sin because no matter how you lived and what you didn't touch and what you didn't do, you still had that stench of death on you. You were still unclean. And so you had to have the blood spilled in order to atone for that sin. You couldn't have access to be in the presence of a holy God without that atonement with blood happening. And so initially, with this freedom in Christ, Peter is eating with Gentiles who are non-kosher, unclean. They're believers, though, and he recognizes that Christ has made them equal. But then these men come from James, 
And Peter pulls back because of their peer pressure, because he's afraid of what they're going to think when they see him violating these rules and customs that they've all been steeped in from birth. And he says, you know, hey, Gentiles, even though we're both recipients of the grace of Jesus, my ethnicity makes me better than you in terms of human value. Functionally, that is what he's doing as he stops eating with them. And of all people, Peter should have known better. Back in Acts chapter 10, there's really a very amazing story, and it's centered on Peter. Prior to this in the book of Acts, which is basically just the history of that first early part of the church's existence, they didn't have this complication because they didn't have Gentile believers that were starting to mingle with them quite yet. And it was a little bit simpler. But then in Acts chapter 10, God gives a vision to this Roman centurion Gentile named Cornelius. And he says, hey, send your guys to Joppa. Find this guy named Peter that you don't know at Simon the Tanner's house. And so Cornelius is like, well, I guess I better do it. So he sends his guys. And meanwhile, at the same time, Peter's hanging out at Simon the Tanner's house. And he has this wild vision of all these unclean animals. This sheet comes down out of heaven full of non-kosher animals. And God says, hey, Peter, check it out. There's a pig here. And I've got this thing for you that's going to blow your mind, and it's called bacon. (laughs) Kill and eat. And Peter's like, wait, what? I have never in my life touched, let alone eaten anything that unclean. And God repeats this three times, keeps telling him over and over, just like drive the point home. And so Peter's sitting there scratching his head, like what on earth is God trying to do here? And these people from Cornelius just show up, these Gentiles who are unclean and Jews aren't supposed to associate with them because they are unclean. So he goes along with them. He takes along six of his friends and they go to Cornelius' house. And this is like days away. So it's a long journey. But he's realizing God's up to something here. And he shows up and he says this out loud. I know I'm not supposed to be associating with you Gentiles. I'm not, even, I'm not supposed to eat with you. I'm not supposed to be in your house or visit you. But he realizes the vision that he had just seen, God had shown him, He shouldn't call anyone unclean. What God had said in that vision is don't call unclean what God has made clean. And so Peter's still trying to figure it out, but he just goes for it and he shares the gospel with Cornelius and his household and his friends. And he doesn't even get done with the presentation and the Holy Spirit descends on these Gentiles and fills them And it's obvious. (laughs) And Peter and his friends are are, they're in shock. Like this has never happened before. This is this is craziness. The Jews were the chosen people of God. They were the only ones who were separate enough, holy enough to have access to God. And all of a sudden, God Himself and the Holy Spirit is not just with those Gentiles, but falling on them and becoming part of them and in them. 
and inhabiting them. And Peter's like, the Holy Spirit is in them. I guess we need to baptize them. And so they baptize them. They can't, he says, we can't deny them the baptism. Like, they're in. And so in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 11, Peter's back home. It's in Jerusalem. And we've got the circumcision party, the same probably similar types of people who are referenced here in Galatians 2. And they corner Peter. And like, you went where? You ate with who? What are you doing that's wrong? You can't do that. It's against the rules. Sort of reminds me, I grew up in the church. It's like classic church drama. You went where? You hung out with who? You did what? How could you? Peter's like, hey, you idiots. The Holy Spirit fell on them. Probably didn't say it like that, but... Actually, next week I get to teach out of Galatians 3, and it starts off, you, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? I love how Paul's, that's probably even a sanitized version of his. So it probably wasn't, hey, you idiots, but you get it. Like, Peter's going like, what do you want me to do? Tell the Holy Spirit, like, to go, go away? Like, you can't do that? Who am I to stand in God's way? So here in Galatians, here we are just a little bit later, Peter, who should know better than anybody else now decides that the Gentiles aren't clean enough for him to eat with. He gets seduced away from the gospel and falls into religion. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And what gives me not just a little bit of pause here, but a lot of pause here, is that this is Peter and Barnabas. Like these, these are apostles. These are ones who have seen Jesus face to face, talked with him, heard the message, seen the death, seen the resurrection, seen the ascension. And they should know better because they're apostles. If they drifted back to rule following, how easy is it for us? And maybe how probable is it for us if they couldn't help it? I think maybe just real quick here, we should go back to the basics of what sort of like rule following versus what the gospel is. So the gospel, according to the circumcision group, is this. They believed in Jesus. They believed in the death and resurrection. They believed that God would save them from their sins, at least to some degree. They had that basic, you know, okay, that's right. But then they said, now you have to do the rules. This is like the order. Then you'll be saved. But the gospel, according to Paul, in this, and this is the true gospel, is believe in Jesus. At that moment, immediately, you're saved. Then, you're motivated to obey the rules. It's, it's a matter of the order. So for some reason, we have a tendency to forget that, and we go back to switching and putting those rules before salvation. For some reason, we just have a tendency to do that, I think partially because maybe it's just comforting to put control back on us. I feel that. Like, 
I've got this spiritual tape measure and I can measure myself. And if I'm doing well, then I feel pretty good about coming to church and I feel pretty good about singing holy, holy, holy. And I can do that with my heart feeling a little bit more full. But if I'm doing bad that week and I show up and I'm like, ah, I didn't quite measure up, then I don't quite feel like I have access. And, you know, and I, I start comparing my performance with other people. And so I might walk in and I've had a bad week and I haven't done really well, but I look at someone else in the room and I'm a pastor, so I get to know a lot of bad things about you guys. And I can measure myself against that and feel just a little bit better. And uh, I'm making sure I'm okay. God's okay. I'm mature. But the fact is I just don't ever quite measure up and it feels heavy. Have you ever felt that? It just feels heavy. It robs me of my energy. It robs me of my joy. It robs me of my ability to love people well. And I feel like God is irritated with me and that I don't have access to him because my performance isn't what he wants. I feel like he doesn't want me to be around him. And what happens to me in that moment, I'll come to church and I'm thinking about praying and my prayers don't have any zeal if I'm doing them at all, because my focus is on myself. And I really, at that moment, have zero expectation that God is going to do anything. The living, active, powerful God who is just dying to do stuff for real in my life and in this world and in this church. And I just shrink back because I've reversed the order on the rules. And so we, here we have Peter, and he's such an amazing guy. I love Peter. He's got so, like, these ups and downs, and he's so bold. And, like, the moment that his eyes come off of Jesus, he just screws up. It's like the time when, <laughs> it is, right? It's like the, when they were in the boat, and there's the waves, and there's the storm, and it's kind of scary, and all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water, and Peter's eyes are just fixed on Jesus, If I was in the boat at that moment, I'd probably want to stay in the boat, even though I see Jesus walking on the water. But Peter, he's got the audacity to go, hey, can I walk on the water too? And then he steps out onto water in the middle of a sea, and his foot doesn't go under the wave. And so he steps out again, and he's on top of the water, and his eyes are fixed on Jesus, and he starts walking. And then as the account goes, he looks around him, his eyes come off of Jesus, and he starts seeing the storm and the waves, and then he sinks. And this is kind of a pattern for him as he grows into maturity, and even after he's mature, because here he is, an apostle leading the church, and he is failing one more time, and the reality is, even after having been filled with the Holy Spirit and performing miracles and seeing amazing power, his eyes are no longer fixed on Christ, and he's full of fear instead, and it's fear of people and what people are going to think. And so he wants to be seen in the moment as the guy who gets it right, and he turns to the rule to save him. And he drifts. And if he can drift... You can drift, and I can drift, and I think I'd go so far as to say we probably will if we take our eyes off of Jesus. I'm so glad that Paul was bold enough to publicly call Peter out. It's a big deal. The name a name like this, is, it's going to be read by billions of people. Let's throw Peter's reputation under the bus. 
because it's worth it for us. <laughs> it's so worth it because then we can put ourselves in this and see I am Peter so much of the time. And I pray that I'm surrounded by a community of people who are willing to do what Paul did to Peter. They see maybe my life is out of step with the gospel and call me out. He was pretty forceful. Verse 14, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The English translation from the Greek in this whole part is kind of clunky. <laughs> it just sort of is. But what he's doing is he's, he's not coming to Peter and saying, hey, Peter, the rules say no racism. So stop being a racist. Eat with the Gentiles. He didn't do that. <laughs> he said, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter, you're a Jew. You grew up a Jew. You've been indoctrinated from birth what to touch and what not to touch, what to eat and what not to eat, how to behave, how not to behave. The Gentiles have not had that rule book. You're going to put all of that on them when you can't even live up to this with your knowledge of it, your experience of it? How do you think that's going to work with Gentiles who have never even seen the law before? Seriously? So for me, as I read this, I can't help but think about the church in America. I saw that Philip Yancey is re-releasing his What's So Amazing About Grace book intentionally this year. Um, I heard an interview with him, um, and I, it was pretty powerful in my opinion. He updated and re-released the book because he, he says, so the original one, this is released like back in the 1900s. I think it was 1980s. And he saw things back then that really felt he needed to write a provocative book about grace because American Christians back then were becoming overly focused on the rule book. And he's like, man, it's even worse today. We are just Pharisees. We've become more like Pharisees, more like the circumcision party than ever before. What he said in this interview, he said, the church today doesn't have much tolerance for forgiveness or for redemption. He said, the sinners, the marginalized, the poor, the very people who were the most attracted to Jesus are reluctant in 2023, was when the interview was, to come to church. Why? Because they just respond, oh, if I went there, they'd just make me feel bad. I think there's a lot we could probably say about that in critique right now, but I did think that his words were a really good caution for us, and I think that the way that Paul comes back at Peter to encourage him to behave is, is pretty, it's, it's, instruct, it, it, it's instructive for us. Um, Paul wants him to change his behavior. We look at the world around us, we would like for that to happen too. But he doesn't say, hey, you're violating the racism rule. Get your act together. 
I mean, he wants him to change that behavior. God condemns racism over and over and over in here. It's wickedness. It's evil. It's wrong. But what he did is he went after Peter's heart. Peter, you say you believe the gospel, but it hasn't affected your heart to the point where you're walking in step with it. And I think if he came to Peter and he just publicly said, you're violating this rule, here's the rule, stop. Peter would be effectively publicly shamed. But I think he'd just end up going back to either that racism or some other form of that type of thing where he's responding to the fear of man. Because ultimately it's just because it's, it's this thing in his heart His heart needs the acceptance and the approval of the circumcision group. Or he'll just divert that desire into another destructive behavior. I think we do in America today, we need to be vigilant to protect our, maybe we should say, uh, doctrinal boundaries. We all want to protect America from deteriorating into an evil place But I think like when Philip Yancey was talking about this, when I was listening to that interview, he said that in our zeal to do that, we easily end up using the world's weapons and they lack grace. A lack of grace and a legalistic adherence to the rules is not holiness. But I think that's what the world absorbs from the church's outward posture often. Certain issues are certainly worth fighting over and fighting for. As long as our fighting is in step with the gospel, I think we forget we have access to the same powerful weapon that Jesus had when he was on this earth. And he could have come up against the Roman government and the oppressors. What did he fight with? He fought with love. He fought with grace. He fought with forgiveness and redemption. And ultimately, he lost on the cross. He let them kill him. I think there's not a lot of that in our world today. And there may not be a lot of it even in our own psyches as we approach this country that we live in. In the church, I don't know that there's a ton of tolerance for forgiveness and the idea that someone can be redeemed even if they were our enemy. And I think we're reluctant to show that to our enemies. Kindness, forgiveness, mercy, because if we do that too much, they might win. I was, this week, I spent the week up in Estes Park with other Fort Collins church pastors, and the, the first night we were praying, all we did all, the whole time was pray together for our churches, for the city, for each other. And the first night we were praying, we're worshiping, we're seeking God, asking the Holy Spirit for guidance for the week, God, what is it that you would have us do together as pastors here during this time? What do you want us to pray about? And one of the pastors spoke up and he said, I think God's saying to us that the church in Fort Collins for 2024, we've lost our smile and we need our smile back. Where's our joy? Are we full of joy that comes from God? Or are we afraid and anxious and shrinking back? And so we spent three days praying about that. It was pretty powerful. 
I, I want to ask that. Like, where is our joy? Are our eyes fixed on Jesus? We've got to get our eyes back on Jesus because we have the righteousness of Christ. God is in the heavenlies, and he looks at you, and no matter what you've done this week, no matter what pressures you face, God is looking at you in delight. So get into his presence for filling and healing. And Hebrews, there we go, for Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We can walk in joy again and quit returning to the law. I want to get through this passage today, so we do need to keep going. I think there's one more point I want to make on this. It's all related. I think there's an argument for church people that's tempting for us to make, um, and it goes like this. It says, If you communicate the gospel to someone, it's going to lead them to licentiousness. If you tell people to just go boldly running back to Christ whenever they sin, they're just going to keep sinning because there is no penalty. So we need to emphasize the rules to keep them in line. So in verse 14 here, Paul says, I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So the rules, the law, they, it says, do this, don't do this. Walk this way, don't walk this way. And Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. You can't focus on that. But then here he says, if you believe the gospel, you better walk this way and not that way. So it kind of muddies things up a little bit, at least at first. But I think there's a way to clear it up. Paul says there's a way to walk in step with the gospel, but it's not about the rules. It's not via the law. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So they're right there. By works of the law, no one will be justified. The law is the diagnostic. It tells you that you're terminal, but it does not justify you. It cannot save you. The purpose of that law, though, when you're in Christ as it's talking about here, faith in Jesus Christ, we believed in Christ, justified by faith in Christ, it flips on its head. The purpose flips for us. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? This is basically that argument that I just put forward, that some will say if you preach the gospel in the way that the Bible communicates it, people will use it as an excuse to walk in unrepentant sin, as if, you know, the get out of hell free card that you, you put in your back pocket when you get, you know, you get saved, is Jesus somehow condoning the sin that you get to keep going in because now you've got a pass. That's basically what that's saying. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Like you could make that accusation that a, a right communication of the gospel is going to open up this loophole for people. And that's absolutely true. It will open up that loophole. <laughs> but Paul says, certainly not. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So I'm not okay with 
having a free pass to sin, but I'm also not okay with trying to be good. Both extremes of that argument are bad. They would just reveal that I don't understand or believe the gospel. We have to preach the gospel with that loophole open. Because here's the bottom line. And it's verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What changed me, what saved me, what redeemed me was not my ability to follow the rules wasn't me trying to be good in order to please God, nor was it me settling into a comfortable life of sin because, oh, I've got a free pass because Jesus has forgiven it all. Being in Christ is the secret to having joy in this world. It is the secret to thriving. It is the secret to being at peace When all of your circumstances say you shouldn't be at peace, it is the secret to being full of energy and passion and drive when you're physically exhausted, when you're sick, when you're ailing, when the world is against you, you can still thrive because of the power of being in Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It feels a little bit like a paradox. So which is it? Am I, am I supposed to live or not live? <laughs> I don't live at all. It's just Christ living. But then he says, the life that I now live. So there's a sense in when, when you've accepted the free gift of the gospel, you go into Christ and you disappear. You're there in the midst of the Trinity. You've got full access. God, the Father doesn't see your sin He sees the perfect track record, the beauty of his son. The Holy Spirit can fully inhabit you because you have the holiness of Jesus. And so there's a sense in which your life disappears, but what it does is it actually frees you up to live the life that God truly meant for you to live. And so when you accept the gospel, it flips all of the motivational structures of your heart and your life. So you're no longer like Peter looking for the approval of someone who seems powerful and knowledgeable and with a good track record like this circumcision party where he's afraid of them so he's going to perform this way. You're no longer in even that category because that won't give you any worth or feelings of value. That's really the reason why Peter did that. It was giving him worth and feeling value and some superiority and giving him some meaning. But the gospel, when you're walking in Christ, when you've been crucified with Christ, and no longer you live, but he lives in you, you now have the ultimate value in all of the world. The only judge who could ever judge your performance judges you as perfect and has pinned all the medals on your chest that Jesus Christ deserves. It'll flip everything in your life. So all the things that now are causing you to feel fatigue, the drive for success at work, the desire for the love and the desire of that person towards you, the raise, the good grades, no, 
They won't mean anything because Jesus is your life. He's your value. He's the one thing in the universe that can actually give you value. And now because of the cross, you have full access to him. People share the message of the gospel as if it stops at being forgiven from your sin, but the depth and the breadth of the gospel is that you have access to the person of God and everything that comes with that. My wife and I brought our children into our family intentionally, not to squish them with rules and make their shoulders slump under a heavy burden, but to invite them into the joy that already was in our marriage, to invite them into a family where we could have fun together, where we could relate together, where they could have access to all of the things that we had our brains, our money, our resources, and we wanted to funnel all of that towards them so they could thrive. And the rules that we have in our house, all they do, all they do is they put boundaries on what that thriving is. I'm not giving my son a rule because I want to squish his thriving. I'm giving him a rule because, hey, buddy, if you go that way and you do that thing, you're not going to thrive anymore that's going to hurt you. That's why. But if he does violate that rule, he's still in the family. We're in the family, guys. The gospel has changed everything for us. We no longer have the pressure of the performance on the rules. Last verse. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And verse 21 is basically just saying, if I went back to rule keeping now, it would be a complete abandonment of my freedom in Christ. My freedom that was bought by his action, his work, his death and resurrection on the cross. So the purpose of the law flips on its head before it showed me that I was terminal. It showed me that. Christ was the only thing that could heal me. Now I'm healed. Now I'm in the family. Now I'm in his presence. Now I'm with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the midst of all of that, I'm finally fully righteous. I'm fully holy. I'm truly and completely loved. And what it does for the law is it no longer is a diagnostic for me. Now it's a guide. It's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If I use it now to try to make me more righteous, to try to measure up, then this says Christ died unnecessarily. It, it wouldn't work. It would end in death. So the law becomes a guide, a light to my feet, a lamp into my path. It's a guide into, just like with my family and my rules and with my kids, it's a guide into experiencing the fullness of the design that God made me for and made the whole world to fit in. It's a guide to experiencing that. Really, truly experiencing that. God is inviting all of us into that. 
So when you see that you've been made right with Christ and you can boldly approach the throne of grace, boldly approach in him and understand without a shadow of a doubt that he delights in you in that moment, the law begins to reveal how God made the world to actually work, how he designed me to thrive. That's what that reveals. And so do not steal starts becoming a delight. Remember the psalm where the psalmist is laying in bed and he's delighting in the law and the law is like honey on his lips? Like lay in bed tonight. Be like, oh, it's on my lips as I speak these words. Do not steal. It's so good. Because now I'm recognizing the personhood of someone else, their possessions, And I don't want to violate that. What a great guide. And I'm fully accepted, so I don't even feel like I need to take that possession from them because I have everything I could possibly want. In fact, I just want to go over there and just celebrate. Man, that is such a cool thing you've got. I'm so glad you get to... I'm truly able to love this person without coveting, without needing, without desiring, without taking. Because God set me right. That's what the law is for us. Does that make sense? Okay. When you start seeing this, the law starts becoming a delight because, and I can't say this enough, it reveals the path we need to take to thrive. I long for my kids to follow my rules, not because I need them to follow my rules for any reason. The rules themselves, they're not the point. It's that I want them to thrive. And I know some things that they don't know. And if they trust me and they go that route, they might end up with a great career and a good marriage and good kids and a house that they own and they won't end up you know, on heroin in the gutter. That's my heart for them. I want them to thrive. But either direction that they take, they're still in, my, in the family. I'm not kicking them out. So when the law says this is how you should treat your wife, this is how you should treat your children, do this, don't do that, I don't stand condemned under it. That's the difference. It's inviting me into the fullness of life. (laughs) That's what it's up to. And I just want to point out, God is a relational God who loves you and spent so much to redeem you. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. And you really think This is what the world thinks of the church, remember? Rules, 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 regulations. You guys are all just beaten down by it, and you're, you know, you're just coming around slump going like, look how stoic I am. I gotta deal with all this stuff. He does not want us to be beaten down and exhausted and hating life. And if you live in that place right now, and you're a parent, and let's just say you have a middle schooler, and you're exhausted and you're beaten down and you're hating life, but you're, man, you're gritting it out. Oh, look at the glory of God and the joy of my salvation. (laughs) You really think your middle schooler is going to see God as a good thing? You're not walking in step with the gospel and you need to get right. You need to fix that. I'm not telling you, you know, don't be racist. Quit performing at work and getting obsessed about that. 
quit coveting, quit looking at that stuff on the internet. We could say all those things. Those are great rules. Get in step with the gospel and see who you are and what you have access to in the person of God. And oh my goodness, when you do that, you will see God start to work in your life. The power of the Holy Spirit is crazy. You're going to find yourself stepping out boldly. You're going to speak against the enemy with strength, regardless of the consequences. You are going to help people tear down spiritual strongholds and chains that are keeping them imprisoned. You will be able to do that with the power and the energy of God working in your life. You'll do crazy things that you never thought were possible, like give away all your money and move to a foreign country and risk your life for the sake of sharing this gospel with people who don't know it. You'll be strong, and the schemes of the enemy and the world can't touch you. not because you're following the rules and God is more happy with you now because you finally got your act together. It's because you no longer see the law of God as a weight to judge you. You see it as a light to your path because you're fully accepted by God. You've been crucified with Christ. Don't refuse to go there today. If Peter and Barnabas could be pulled away you can too. And it's just a life of fatigue and condemnation. <laughs> Walk in gospel freedom. We're going to get into that more next week as we talk more about the law and what it looks like to walk in freedom and walk in step with the Spirit. Band, why don't you guys come up? We're going to close with a song, and it's a song that, um, honestly, when I first heard it, I didn't connect with it until I realized it's all about this. And the song is In Your Midst. Because I do have a tendency to focus on how I'm measuring up, and then that justification element of the gospel message of forgiveness is very comforting to me. But I think we all may have this tendency where we could just kind of bump up against a wall at that point, and it's because we're not sitting boldly in the presence of God, fully accepted and delighted in and living in that identity, in the midst of God, that's in the presence of God, is where we need to take one more step into. And that step's going to look different for every single one of us. But just sing this song, and maybe it can just be that first step for each one of us as we make progress, not in keeping the rules, but in walking in step with the gospel.